Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. This is your host, Brian Karam. I am your host, Brian Karam. This is, I'm an objective thing now. Anyway, (laughs) here to join us to talk about our weekly review in news and politics, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call, John Bennett. This week, we get to unpack the following. The House and Senate uh, passed the Debt Ceiling Act, and Biden signs it. We've got Trump on tape. Uh, we'll see where that goes. The grand jury reconvenes in the classified documents case for Donald Trump. Chris Christie and Mike Pence jump into the presidential race. There's a counteroffensive in Ukraine, and Biden's made some bold moves with with russia in regards to russia and we've got your letters we got your letters we got your letters so stick around we got a lot to unpack we'll be right back after this in this modern age of misinformation and deceit just ask the questions newsletter cuts through the bs and gets to the truth with brian's in-depth articles columns and exclusive content not released anywhere else Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, welcome back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. With me is editor-at-large from CQ Rocall, John Bennett, and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, we're going to start this week with the uh, the news of the week. Of course, the uh, House and Senate passed the debt ceiling act. President Biden signed it into law. Crisis averted. Situation normal. All fucked up. So another snafu, or if you prefer the other acronym from the World War II era, fucked up beyond all reason. It's all foobar. But the the question, and I'll I'll start with you, John. Is it does this really solve any problems? Well. Uh, we didn't, uh, the country didn't default. So all of Woo-hoo! our, all of our retirement accounts, which have taken a hit over the last few years, didn't take, you know, a haymaker. Um, the president was right in his address, uh, Friday night that n- neither side got everything they wanted, but, uh, the people didn't default. So they got what they needed. I thought that was, a a fair line from the president, um, you know, I've had a hard time. I was going to do a version of kind of a report card late last week on how the various big players in the talks fared. Um, and I found it pretty hard to come up with a grade because there was so much spinning of this thing. And, you know, the New York Times had a good story yesterday, basically told from the White House's perspective um, that they feel because of some of the technical language buried in the document. Um, about how some of this would would play out and be implemented and how it would look after the the two years that matter the first two years of this um they the white house feels like they won pretty big 
um, because of some of that technical language. So, you know, you would look, you would think that OMB director Shalonda Young, a former senior appropriation staffer on the Hill, uh, maybe bested um, Congressman McH Patrick McHenry, who was um, one of Kevin McCarthy's lead negotiators. And they're, they're kind of the two policy, I don't want to say nerds is a pejorative, but that's what they are, two policy wonks that understand how to write legislation and so if from the White House's perspective, I think they think Young uh, defeated uh, McHenry here and 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 it's a net positive for Democrats. And um, it seems like they they convinced a lot of Democrats. They the White House briefed House and Senate Democrats throughout the week and some of the criticism from the left and even some moderates uh, died down in a hurry once they started filling them in on some of these technical uh, provisions and this technical language that was in the bill about how this stuff would actually carry out uh, the food stamps and and federal aid um, restrictions as as Kevin McCarthy tried to sell them uh, the White House countered with Shalonda Young saying uh, that actually expands some of these programs for homeless veterans and others so it's as far as the books go it's the people all the people that would be eligible to come on to these programs would actually be greater than the people who would be kicked off by the new restrictions, uh, that kind of thing, and and how the budget caps would actually work. Uh, again, the White House thinks they won this thing, but it, it was hard to to try to grade. And actually, uh, I set the idea on fire and uh, burned it and didn't do it, <laughs> uh, as we do in this business. It, it was just it was just hard to you know. Did Kevin McCarthy was was it a C or a B minus or is it a B plus? Or if you listen to somebody else it might have been an a minus and um i'm not you know i'm I, i'm not qualified to dive into the technical language and decipher it and didn't have time uh frankly so um i, I think this one's a hard one uh, we didn't default so I, I guess i guess it's a net win i mean this isn't an earth-shattering bill it's not a ground-breaking piece of legislation it's not the new deal um <laughs> you know but some you know, it, it's, it's the same, same deal it seems like not Democrats, but it seems like the White House got a little more than House Republicans. And and of course, it's not even close to the House Republicans bill that they passed earlier this year. Um, so I, that's why the White House is claiming a big victory here. But the legislation itself is is kind of net neutral. Um, but we didn't default. And, and the White House and Shalonda Young said that was that was. That was what the president gave her as an ultimate goal is don't default. And, you know, Biden, I think, is feeling pretty good about this thing. He he feels he feels so confident in the bill that he won. That was his first Oval Office address. Yes, it was. That, that tells point. you how he feels. That tells you how yeah. he feels about this. Yeah. Michael, what you what's your take from it? 701.19. That's my take. 701.19? <laughs> yeah. 701.19 is the number of points that the stock market rose after Biden signed the deal. And if Jay Powell and the Fed hold on interest rates, I think you'll get another 700 plus number. So if what we're looking at is our economic well-being uh, collectively, then it's a win for everybody and you don't really need to scorecard it. I mean, I understand why people uh, want to do that, but if you look at it just at the most macro level, 
are we better off today than we were the day before the signature? I think the answer, broadly speaking, is yes. The devil is in the detail on aspects of the bill, as as John properly says. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But the most important thing is that we are on our same normal financial uh, well-being track. One of the criticisms I've heard of it, Joe Walsh, former presidential candidate, former uh, Tea Party uh, congressman, in his criticism of the deal said that basically what you have is an argument over discretionary spending. It was all political theater and nothing was done to actually go after the uh, the debt. It just raised the ceiling for more debt without dealing with the debt. And the fact that it was only discretionary spending and discretionary spending outside of the DOD that was taken. So it's pennies on the dollar they were arguing over and not having anything to do with actually the problems of the budget in the country. Uh, yes, Michael, Brian, isn't isn't the answer to that is fair enough, you know, if you want to be fair enough about it, fair enough, <laughs> but that's for another day. This this day was about the the debt ceiling and right. achieve that objective. Now, if we want to talk more broadly and more specifically about federal spending and everything, all departments are on the table, then I think that would be a welcome addition to the conversation in, in Washington. But to criticize this for not taking on an unrelated, in effect, issue um, at this particular moment in time, I think uh, is a political statement and not one that I want to pay much attention to. John? It um, the, the deal doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. It just kind of freezes most spending. Right. Uh, maybe a modest, you know, a modest increase. Um, the defense piece is the Hawks are, as they will, already talking about using um, uh, supple uh, emergency supplementals, what became known during the uh, Afghanistan and Iraq wars as overseas contingency operations appropriations bills. Um, so that's emergency spending. They're already talking about using one of those ostensibly for Ukraine aid, but they would pack it with a bunch of other stuff. And that would be a way to get around the defense cap. Um, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> please, please invite me because I have some thoughts. Um, but they've done that before, so they know how to do that. And um, but you know, who knows what what happens two years out? Uh, some of the language here in the bill—that's that's where to look. But it doesn't do anything to address the debt. Um, you know, that could be an issue in the in the Republican primary. Um, but you know, Donald Trump spent a lot of money. He added, uh, he added a lot to the debt when he was president, uh, yes, Republicans went along with that for the most part, Republicans went along with that. So I don't really, I don't know if they can, you know, they, they haven't really gotten a glove on Trump yet. Uh, none of the other candidates, uh, I don't, and I don't think the federal debt is where they're gonna, you know, make up ground on Trump. So, you know, this could be an issue, uh, Biden, the Biden, the the math that Biden and his folks use say he's uh, reduced the debt. Of course, the Republican math claims uh, he's added to it. So, um, woohoo! 
<laughs> we'd have to bring in an economist, I guess, to sort that out. Yeah, right. Um, but you know, it, it no, it doesn't. It doesn't do anything to stop it. And and one last thing, um, to to go back to your initial question, there currently is no debt ceiling. What the deal does is suspend it into early 2025, gets us past the next presidential election, gives maybe a new president or perhaps the the current president or perhaps the former president who's <laughs> also could be the new president. Anyway, it gives it would give either of the front runners uh, time to, you know, if, if it's Biden, people would leave inevitably. They would need a shorter runway to get off the ground for a second term, and then Trump would have to come in and and build a second term administration. So the the idea is to give whoever's president a little time, a little runway to get to things work going on before it. they have to come back and and do something with the debt ceiling in twenty twenty five. But um, oh uh, yeah, there is no debt ceiling; it's just suspended. Yeah. So borrow at will. <laughs> have at it. I will go back to what I said after I heard President Biden speak and after uh, after, well, Mitch McConnell came out to the sticks and it was Mitch's. It was Senator Mitch McConnell, the uh, Senate uh, minority leader from the great state of Kentucky, who lives about three blocks. Never mind. Anyway, he uh, he came out to the sticks and said, we're not going to default. We know it. They know it. And Biden had said, we're not going to default. So. All of this was, I, I I do think it was all politically maneuvered, uh, staged political drama. But what it did show at the end of the day, and what is, I think, the biggest losers coming out of this are the, um, it has to be the Freedom Caucus, who had threatened McCarthy with his political life and the loss of his leadership if they made a deal. You had Matt Gates coming out and saying if he made a deal, then that was a black letter against him uh, on what uh, they agreed to if he were to be speaker. And so at the end of the day, it was political theater that showed that they could work together, uh, contrary to Donald Trump's, you know, when he was the one, Donald Trump came out and said, listen, um, we may have to do a default. And this was Congress and the president saying, no, we can work together. We don't need to default. And at the end of the day, those who were pushing for the default, those who were pushing for or when, you know, government has become, and, and John, you know this as well as I do from covering Congress, it, since the New Gingrich era, it's all been about, you know, a zero-sum game. Uh, win at all costs, no compromise. This showed the ability to compromise. It showed that the Freedom Caucus doesn't have the clout that it thinks it has, because if it does ask for, and they've threatened to call for the ouster of uh, Kevin McCarthy over the negotiations in this bill, if they do that, they might have, they might have, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think it was, um, who was it, the one who called it from the Texas Hill Country, was it uh, Chip Roy who called it a, a turd sandwich and said there would be a reckoning? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there would be a reckoning. So that's, you know, they were threatening McCarthy, but they don't have... What they did show is that there might be some Democrats who would vote to keep McCarthy around if if they pushed it. So what were they what was Gates and what was that end of the political spectrum pushing for? There when they talk about unity, they said, you know, this disrupts unity. Well, it disrupt it disrupted unity in the Republican Party, but it promoted unity in the country. So at the end of the day, I think the big loser in this is going to be the far 
far right, the, the Freedom Caucus people, who will no longer have the ability to hold Kevin McCarthy hostage to their ideals. And so he may be able to go out and hunt for some uh, moderate voices, if he can find them, uh, to, to help him shore up what he may or may not believe. That's just my thought going forward. You're you're shaking your head there, John. I'm I'm contemplating. I'm thinking about what McCarthy said um, the other the other day after it passed the House. He he said it was one of the best days he's had since he was yeah. first elected to Congress and yeah. can't keep. Now that's interesting to me, but I still view a lot of things through the prism of the 2013 immigration bill that passed the Senate bipartisan negotiated front uh, start to finish with members of both parties. Uh, I think it got over 70 votes in the Senate, yep. both on the procedural and the final vote. And we all wrote our stories and then sprinted over to the House side. And Speaker John Boehner came out with a little press conference and and said he would not put the Senate bill on the floor because the far right killed it. So it's one thing for McCarthy to kind of ignore them when a federal debt default is at risk and everyone's warning of economic catastrophe. And it's another thing with something like an immigration bill that starts in well, the yeah. Senate hits over to the house. Um, you know, they might come for him if he put that and passed it with, you know, 90 to 150 democratic votes. And I'm not sure that I'm not, I'm not sure that you get as many Democrats for something like that as you did when default is on the table. Yeah. So you might get, you know, you might get half that. So you might get, you know, 80 uh, 75 to 80 Democrats, and that might not be enough to push it across. So then there's no incentive for McCarthy to even bring it on the floor because yeah. then he risks his own job. Well, I, I was thinking about his his own hide. <laughs> I don't think the uh, Michael. I what what what's your thoughts? Well, I think that McCarthy looks for the first time since his speakership as a statesman. That is, he stood next to the president of the United States and negotiated a deal, which, as I say, may have lots of imperfections, but at the most macro level was in our collective best interests. And so he doesn't look like the guy who is begging the Matt Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens for support for uh, in exchange for all sorts of crazy um, deals. So I think for him... It, it was stature increasing. And yeah. you know, perhaps that's good um, for him. I'm not sure that an empowered McCarthy unless <laughs> he's going to continue to play, you know, statesman and and really try to legislate as opposed to you know obstruct um is is good for America. But if he if he, if there's a lesson learned here that he can empower himself by not pandering to those um, uh, extremists on the on the right and get stuff done that's in the best interest of himself, his you know politics and the nation, then you know, I think he he comes out a net winner in this. We'll see how he behaves after it. You know yeah. this was just a one-off um, then and we're back to you know 
business as usual with the, the House Republicans uh, and their uh, and their investigations, then you know nothing nothing ventured, nothing gained. But if he comes out of it thinking, look, I can marginalize those guys and pick up a few, you know, center right Democrats and and you know work with. Um, Democratic leadership, then, you know, maybe I can stick in this job for a, a longer time and actually have a uh, an enhanced reputation. John, <laughs> yeah, you look I, anxious I, that, to jump in. That's John's being anxious. He he, he raised the finger. <laughs> not that finger is my index finger. Yeah, that's, um, for those who can't see. Yeah, right, it, was my it wasn't finger. that finger. <laughs> right. Um, oh, it was the QAnon yeah. pinky, wasn't it? No, <laughs> no. Uh, wow, um, that's a good turn, didn't it? Um, I, uh, I, I will believe all of this when I see it. It, you yeah. Know, I, Michael's right. It does look like that, at least uh, as the smoke clears and what the speaker himself said uh, to reporters after the House passed the bill, um, but. You know, it's one thing to to kind of be lost in the moment and a bit euphoric. And, you know, he was shocked that they got so many Democrats on this bill. And I think he was a little shocked that he, you know, he promised 150 Republican votes. He delivered 149. I think, Kev, I think Mr. McCarthy was shocked that he got that many Republicans, too. So <laughs> I, I, think I saw the look on his face. I think yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, it, you know, not a very good golfer, but every time I chip one in, I've seen that look before. Yeah, well, that's kid. right. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, let's let the smoke clear. Let's let get business. You know, we're going to get back to marking up appropriations bills and fighting over uh, fighting over what all this means when they get back this week. So I'm going to believe all this when I see it. I just don't believe in these grand pronouncements in, in a euphoric moment. And, and I think this... This doesn't the the Freedom Caucus folks and the on the hard right they're not ones that they're not ones that take their lessons and you know they they don't take their punishment and then um, alter their tactics. Yeah. <laughs> this is more likely to make them double down uh, than anything else. I just I just I just can't get myself to think that um, here we are in this bipartisan era with Kevin McCarthy leading us to a unified country. <laughs> with, I just. You know, I again, I said this last week, I think I have a pretty good imagination, but I can't get there. <laughs> One final thought and to Michael's point uh, before we go to break. Michael, you made a good point when when he came out and John, you did, too. And this was President uh, Biden's first, you know, uh, speech sitting behind, you know, the resolute desk from the Oval Office in prime time. Uh, he could have taken his hands away from his mouth a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I, I don't know why he did that. But that aside, maybe he was afraid that he was going to spit out his lunch or his gum or something. But anyway, but that aside, when he thanked, and in his statement, that he, uh, the presser that he sent out, he did thank uh, Kevin McCarthy for negotiating in good faith and said he did it well. Uh, that was an indication to me that he is trying his hardest to bring uh, government away from the zero-sum game, the Newt Gingrich era of that, and what Donald Trump perfected. I guess it remains, as you said, John, to 
to see if that is the case and what we do. I, I'm not ready to uh, shout Kumbaya, my Lord, uh, and, you know, but, and, and do the, I'd like to teach the world to sing him, but uh, I, I think it does bode well. So with that said, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, <laughs> what's on the horizon, Donald Trump, yeesh, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at Substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karaman. With me, as usual, John Bennett, editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And Michael, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Trump world. Uh, the grand jury is reconvening in the classified documents case this week, and there are rumors of Trump on tape. And this is going to be different than Girls Gone Wild. Uh, maybe har uh, maybe a, it's a hark harking back to uh, the uh, um, or a beckoning back to uh, Rosemary Woods and Nixon on tape. But I'd like you to kind of uh, tell us where we are with Trump and his with him on audio tape saying some things that he supposedly that in Manhattan I think is one of them, and then there's another one, and then the grand jury reconvening in the classified documents case. I I think it's safe to say that in Correct me if I'm wrong that in the Manhattan case, what the prosecutor claims he has on tape is actually what Michael Cohen has already said he's got on tape of Donald Trump. But I could be completely off base. Your take. Let's, let's turn to Mar-a-Lago first, because I think okay. that's um, we know more about that in, in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. There are a couple of statutes that are at issue here. One is mishandling and um, improper retention of classified documents. Another is the sharing of those documents. And then the third is the obstruction of the investigation. Two recent developments that are uh, in the news and probably will be in the grand jury is one, Evan Corcoran, who was a lawyer for Trump that was brought on to help in the Mar-a-Lago documents search warrant, subpoena, uh, caper, was forced to turn over, was forced to turn over his notes. He took apparently um, a lot of notes, notes on his communications with um, former President Trump around the issue that he was hired to represent him on. That's not unusual. Lawyers take notes. Um, what was unusual was that in this case, the prosecution said to a judge that those notes are evidence of a crime and that the attorney-client privilege, which protects the disclosure of attorney notes in conversations with his client, should be breached because they are evidence of a crime, the so-called crime fraud exception to the attorney general, to the attorney-client privilege. Right. The judge, yeah. the judge accepted the uh, representations of the prosecutor. There was a hearing. 
and she forced those notes to be turned over to the prosecutor. So those notes have been reported as containing essential roadmap to how the searches of Mar-a-Lago were conducted. And that implies in um, the reading of those notes from the newspaper accounts of them that Corcoran, the lawyer who did the searching, may have been misled as to where all the uh, documents were. Uh, you know, sort of like, don't look here is the implication <laughs> in, in, some of, in, 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 in his notes. And then lo and behold, when the Justice Department got upset enough that they came down with their search warrant, the places where Corcoran was told, don't look here, specifically Trump's office, contained classified documents. And so his notes seem to be a bit of a roadmap to what was going on around um, the, the retention and uh, forced disclosure of these notes. In he's addition, a, that, he's a former federal prosecutor, too. Do, did you know him? Do you know him? I didn't. I didn't know him, but he is, okay. yes, a former federal prosecutor brought on, I'm told, by Boris Epstein. Yeah. Um, uh, a Trump anyway, lawyer. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go and, ahead. And then so that's part one. So those notes, they haven't already been before the grand jury, I would think would be, you know, before the grand jury. The second thing is that there was reporting by uh, CNN uh, and The Guardian and other um, news outlets that there is a tape recording of Donald Trump. And I think this first surfaced actually in an interview that Trump uh, gave to people who were writing a biography of uh, former chief of staff Meadows. It was in that context, I think, that there was a tape made where Trump is saying, I possess classified documents. This is post-presidency. I possess classified documents, which I'd love to be able to show you, but I'm, but I'm not allowed to. We don't know whether he talked about the contents. Remember, we have to make clear that classified documents is not a matter of the piece of paper itself. It's the content of right. it. So for example, if I have a classified document that says we keep nuclear weapons in Brian Karam's garage, and that's on a piece of paper, it's not the piece of paper that's so important. It's the content of it. So I can't say, I can't show you this piece of paper, but what the piece of paper says is that yeah. <laughs> the garage contains the atomic um, codes. That would still be a violation of the classified Correct. records. Um Provision. And, so and for not, the record, it's just my kids' hockey stuff, but go ahead. Yeah, well, <laughs> the smell of it is what caused the Yeah, that's the yeah, that, that's yeah. that's teenage you angst. <laughs> you gotta wash that stuff every now and then. Yeah. Um so so back to being trying to be serious about it, the 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 reporting is that Trump acknowledges post-presidency that he is in possession of documents that were not declassified. Because remember, he has said, I declassified everything. Right. Um, but here he seems to be acknowledging that he is in possession of something which is still classified. And the question is, well, what is that document? Some say it relates to our war plans with respect to Iran um, that were formulated by a chief of um, uh, the armed services, uh, Milley, uh, the joint chief's uh, chairman. Others are not as clear about what it is, but regardless of what it contains, although that 
could be important, regardless of right. what it contains. Um, he seems to be acknowledging on this audio tape that I still possess classified documents, which I'm not allowed to show you because they're classified documents. Well, so then he understands what classified classification is about. He seems to acknowledge that he's in possession of something that he shouldn't be in possession of. And then the question of what was this, what is this document? And when the uh, archivists and the DOJ asked for it back, did they ever get it? So is he still right. in possession of classified documents? That's the whole sort of uh, story of what's going on. And we will see how it plays out. Some have speculated that Smith has, you know, really come to the end of his investigation. Is that all he needs to do? And this uh, reconvening of the grand jury is for the purposes of determining whether to indict or not. But so you think that's what's going to happen this week? I don't know, Brian. I, you know, I, I, I say we're somewhere in the seventh to ninth innings. I just don't know which inning we're in. Eh, fair. John. One thing that's interesting here is uh, from some of the reporting that Michael mentioned, um, the, <laughs> Trump doesn't quite seem to understand still, at least <laughs> at the time of the, the alleged meeting where he's talking and perhaps waving around this classified document, um, kind of how things work. He's saying that, that <laughs> he's, he's claiming, according to the reporting, that General Milley drew up this Iran war plan himself right um but <laughs> but number okay number one that's what the pentagon does having covered it for so long yeah. um, they they come up with a war plan or two and amongst other things that they do or don't do with our taxpayer money that's one thing they do a lot of and number two if he if he being president trump commander-in-chief trump asked then chairman of the joint chiefs general milley to draw up an Iran war plan, uh, Milley might slow roll him on it, but Milley is duty bound to carry out the order right. and work with his people in the services and the combatant commanders and and every and the and the intelligence agencies to come up with, okay, Mr. President, this is this these this is what it would look like. Maybe here are three different scenarios. Here's four different ways we could invade. Um, you know, uh, cruise missiles first, bombers second, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think this shows that Trump still doesn't get it. If he asked Milley to draw up a plan, salute, yes, sir, drive back over to the Puzzle Palace and get to work. Um, right. Now, it also shows grievance because this is at a time Milley had done a number of interviews after Trump had left office, um, you know, expressing grave concern about the prospect of, of Trump coming back down the road as president um, and 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 pulling the curtain back a little bit about what it was like to be um, then President Trump's Joint Chiefs Chairman, his top military advisor. So, um, and Milley was very critical and raised a lot of concerns after Trump left office, um, spoke with more candor, of course, because the guy wasn't his boss anymore. Um, so this is grievance. This, again, is Trump wanting to tell everyone when he says share, according to the reporting, the best we can decipher, when Trump said share the document, he didn't mean sell it to the Saudis. <laughs> he didn't mean, you know, sell it to some other Iranian rival. He meant share it with all of us to right. prove to, to somehow magically prove that Milley was lying on him. So once again, this is grievance, even, even grievance over profit profit for Trump 
Um, so this just shows where his mindset is right now. And again, you know, this is what he's going to run on. Uh, he's going to run on grievance and trying to settle scores and, and not on what he's going to do for the people in a second term, for the economy, for jobs, for health care, uh, to, to, to finally combat inflation. Maybe I to call get, it the revenge maybe, tour. Yeah, maybe to get travel costs under control, gas, maybe get gas prices down, uh, maybe. So that that might not keep him from winning the nomination. In fact, it probably won't. But, you know, he got into a lot of that grievance stuff in the 2020 campaign, and, and Biden was just Joe with that steady message. And, 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 and Trump wasn't able to defeat him in those six to eight states that matter. There's going to be the same six to eight states are going to matter this time. And if Trump's out here talking about General Milley, who may, who's going to be gone by then, he's term limited. They've already nominated a replacement. If he's out here talking about some general, not to disparage the General Milley's record of service, I thank you, sir, but he'll be gone. He'll be another retired general. And, and, you know, uh, these ind independent voters might look at that and say, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? Joe's over here telling me he's got a jobs plan. Maybe I'll vote for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so meanwhile, I think this could be. Trump's think, on his revenge tour. Right. This mindset, this revenge tour mindset, you know, I, it's not going to affect the GOP primary very much, but it, I think it will affect the general. But does it, the question, I guess. If he gets there. Yeah. If he get that's the question. Does he get there? And, and Michael, does this, bode well for those who believe he's not going to get there or does it bode well for the prosecutors what we've seen you know in, in the last week does it mean anything on prosecuting donald trump where does that lead us well again it leads us back to the question of whether or not the prosecutors have evidence that trump either unlawfully uh mishandled meaning took and retained documents that he had no right to, and he did so knowingly and intentionally, and uh, or whether he obstructed the efforts of the government to get them back. Those are the those are the Mar-a-Lago questions, and um, how this this Milley document and this conversation plays in is not clear because nobody uh, has that has been reporting on this has actually heard the tape right so it's always a very dangerous thing to have someone tell you this is what's on the tape and you represent that as true before you, you haven't heard have it heard before you've actually heard the tape everyone who's been a prosecutor who's been told by one of their agents that the tape recording of the undercover or the uh, wiretap nails it and doesn't <laughs> doesn't listen to the tape before they indict is making a huge mistake. <laughs> I've seen that in court, actually. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. You have to hear it for yourself. And so, you know, presumably the prosecutors have heard this tape or will hear this tape, and the grand jurors will hear this tape. And so, how it plays out is what's on it, and and how does it how does it fit into um, the prosecution, whether or not. It has any bearing on uh, Trump's candidacy only is does an indictment were to come impact the voters view of Trump. And we talked about this last week. Why is DeSantis running? And one of the things that we speculate yes. about is he's running because he thinks he's the Trump heir apparent. And as long as Trump is in the race, he's going nowhere fast. But if something like this 
happens, that there's an indictment in the Mar-a-Lago um, documents case. And, gov- and, and General Milley is out in public as a retired general saying that Trump was a, a real threat to our national security. And voters start to pivot from Trump because they think he's not electable. Then DeSantis says, here I am, you know, a kinder, gentler, but no more, no less dangerous um, candidate than than Trump. And so we'll see if it plays out that way. I think that's how DeSantis is hoping it it plays out. But it, a, a, a Republican primary without Trump in it, I don't know if if it all you know falls in place for DeSantis. Uh, with all these other candidates in there, it'll be interesting to see how the vote fractures in a non-Trump um, present primary. Well, I've, that's a perfect, yeah, perfect segue, brother. That's you, you perfectly segued into the next segment, Chris Christie. That's, and that's, who, that's why I'm paid the big bucks to be on this yeah, show. <laughs> Chris Christie, and, God, God bless you, Chris Christie and Mike Pence have jumped in this week to the race. Yeah, so we're all getting the big bucks for that. Uh, Chris Christie and Mike Pence are telling us they're going to run this week, and the big question has got to be why. <laughs> so as we take a look at it. Mike Pence actually was the guy they were going to hang on on January 6th. He was hung an effigy, but they were going to hang the real guy, and he wouldn't even get into a car with his own Secret Service agents because he thought better than to do so. Chris Christie is a guy who, uh, a, a large man, who um, who gave uh, continents to, to, uh, to uh, Donald Trump in his first uh, run for the office and uh, uh, advised Donald Trump to go after uh, Joe Biden because he was a stutterer. Interrupt him and try to make him stutter was his uh, his key strategic move with Donald Trump. Both these guys are in the race and you got to wonder what the hell for. It seems like the more people in the race, the more that it, that favors Donald Trump because he has a very rabid uh, coalesced base. Maybe it's only 30% of the voters, but if you've got now, what we, we've got more than the seven dwarfs, we've got about a dozen candidates uh, on the, let's see, if we go over them all that have declared so far, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence and Chris Christie are joining the race, Nikki Haley is in, Tim Scott, Donald Trump, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, radio host Larry Elder, and the CEO of Anti-Woke, Vivek Ramaswamy. So those are the ones that have declared so far on the Republican side. Why in the hell, John, would Mike Pence and Chris Christie get into this race? It's easier for me to understand why Chris Christie is getting into the race uh, than Mike Pence. I'll start with Christie. His his appearances on uh, ABC's This Week program for the last few months, uh, even though in a sign that Christie is getting into the race, ABC has parted ways with with Governor Christie. So I think that's a pretty big sign that he's definitely jumping in. But yeah, um, he wants to he has made the case that that Trump is unfit for office and and too dangerous and it's too big of a risk to put him back in the White House. And, you know, Chris Christie does have a reputation for, in his own words, telling it like it is. And, you know, he wants to get in the race and in his mind, be a truth teller about Trump. Uh you know, DeSantis hits Trump on some policy uh, items. So does Nikki Haley. But, you know, they haven't gone to 
the all the legal stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, Chris Christie is not going to have such trepidation. He's going to go right at Trump about January 6th, trying to overturn the election, uh, the, the Manhattan case, the business fraud. Um, he's going to hit Trump on all of that. And he can pull the curtain back a little bit because he advised Trump in both yes. of his previous campaigns. So he can tell us a little bit about maybe on the campaign trail what Trump's like behind the scenes. So that's why Christie's running. He, th Christie thinks he can make a difference in the primary and 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 you know not so much. I don't. He's not in it to win the nomination. I don't think he's in it to try to convince voters to look elsewhere. Uh, but you know, if he catches fire, that would change. Then he would think he could win, and 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 he would stay in longer. But I think that's what he wants to do. He wants to just try to convince voters that anybody else in the field would be better than Donald Trump. Now, Mike Pence, you know, I've told this story here and elsewhere. Despite January sixth, despite being critical of his former boss, um, I spoke with a former at the time uh, a senior Pence. Um, senior Pence aide in the when he was vice president, who told me, you know, John, uh, Mike is three things. He's very religious. He's a big family man, and he's ambitious, and not in that order. And when I rank them, gee, I wonder who that was you were talking to. Well, I can't <laughs> reveal it, but um, when I, I when think I, I know. said when I said uh, religious, ambitious, and family, that was my ranking. Uh, the line was silent. Yeah. And when I re-ranked him, I said ambition, religion, family. And I got an affirmative on the other end. So and I just and he, he this is a very ambitious man who wants to be president. That has not changed since I had that conversation. Um, he just he he thinks he, you know, and he but the religion comes in. And Mike Pence will probably say in his announcement speech or his video, or probably both, that you know, he and his his wife and his family prayed on this, and he feels that God has advised him to run for president. Um, yeah, I'm not going to argue with the man's religion. That's that's a personal right. thing, but the math just doesn't seem to be there for the former vice president. Um, he doesn't seem to be resonating very much, and he does have a lot of name recognition. He's the vice president of the United States. Um, it's not clear to me why he's going to put himself through this um or his family through this i i think it'll be um i don't think it'll be a long campaign for the former vice president <laughs> i don't he could he could say a lot of things on the trail to criticize trump he could be like a mini christie he could take us inside the room in various moments but it's just not his style so far to do that he'll criticize the former president over January 6th um but that's about it and and why and and why would you bring that up very much in a Republican primary right. just look at the poll numbers about January 6th so i just don't see pence's path to 10% much less the nomination i well and all polling shows and and look mark my words i don't want to come up short in this however i will say that i don't see i don't see mike pence uh, catching fire because I don't think I think he has the attractiveness of you know like uh, curdled milk. Michael, what about you? Well, I have no idea what Republican voters um, are looking for in a candidate. Uh, <laughs> I don't think uh, they do. <laughs> it's interesting that, that Donald Trump. That's what yeah, they're looking for. Yeah, 
Well, some are for sure, and yeah. others not. But um, it's interesting that the Republican National Committee has set interesting standards to qualify for uh, appearance on the debate stage. It's a lot of money from a lot of uh, different people from a lot of different states. And uh, I don't know what they're doing here, whether they want to make sure they don't have the type of show that they had um, last time around with 20, 20 non-viable candidates. Uh, but but they seem to be trying to narrow the field by um, the entrance um, uh, credentials that you would need to, to, to get into into the debates. Um, so I'm not sure what, what, what they're up to. Maybe John or you, Brian, have a better, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can. Yeah, that's good. But, God bless you. You spoke words for all of us. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I really don't, I mean, Trump seems to control 30 to 40% of the Republican votes. Yeah. Base. And the more, the more candidates that are there, the more, likely it will be a repeat of uh, 16 where he gets his 30% and everyone else gets 12 and, yeah. and he's the, and he's the nominee. Um, you know, whether or not Chris Christie is running just to be a spoiler for Donald Trump uh, is hard to believe for me, given how ambitious uh, Christie has been over, over his, uh, the course of his political career. I, I think all these guys uh, maybe delusionally, but all these guys think that they they can win and they can catch fire. Look, if if um, Rex Santorum could catch fire, anyone could catch fire. Well, that was just Rick Santorum burning himself down. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 what I'd like to ask Chris Christie about if he were on the debate stage and I was a questioner was, can we talk about the uh, GW Bridge? And, yeah. and 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 what yeah. you did to to punish political opponents, you know? Yeah, and you're telling me that you're you're the guy who's going to come forward now and yeah. Yeah. represent truth and justice in an American way and, and even thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's our boy. That's <laughs> the guy who who sat on the, the beach that he closed. Yeah, that's public. <laughs> you know, that's the guy. The guy yeah. who was a sycophant to Trump for yeah. all these years and now all of a sudden has found religion and is going to tell us the, uh, the evils of his prior ways, please, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's all bullshit. That's, <laughs> but, but that's just me. I mean, I, I, I look, I, I honestly, and guys correct me, man, if I'm wrong, but I look at all of this and go, I've never seen a more, I mean, I get, you know, we've talked about this before. I understand why Nikki Haley's in a race. I understand, you know, uh, Tim Scott, I, even Asa Hutchinson, maybe, but I, some of these guys, particularly Chris Christie, Mike Pence, who the hell is attracted to Mike Pence as, as a candidate? He lost a reelection bid in his home state of Indiana. Um, he's, uh, I, I, you know, he was pictured this week on the back of a hog, uh, for those who are, don't understand that's a, a harley davidson dressed in leathers and, and i thought well there's somebody who actually favors drag queen shows but that's just 
Maybe that's just me. It just didn't look right. I, I don't know. It, how it sort of reminded me, Brian, of Michael Dukakis in the tank. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's exactly what it reminded me of. I, you see Mike Dukakis in a tank. Oh, what? He's driving a tank? Give me a break. Remember that. Well, you, you have to, your audience, if they're younger, if they're as young as John Bennett here, <laughs> you know, Google Mike Dukakis in a tank and see if this picture, this goofy it. picture. Running for president. Yeah. I just I just Googled Pence and on the Harley and the leather vest that he's wearing, it's clearly never been worn before. <laughs> clearly brand new. And, and I did cringe. you see the shirt I, he's wearing underneath it? I cringed. Hashtag analysis. Yeah, that's <laughs> So that's who's these are the guys running against Trump, and we make fun of Donald Trump, and justifiably so. But you take a look at the people running against him, and you just have to wonder: is there anybody in the Republican Party capable of cogent thought? <laughs> With that thought in mind, we'll take another short break and we'll let you laugh, and we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It's just asked the question. If you missed us in the break, we solved all the world's ills. We we tuned into ESPN Plus and we're ready for baseball. So with that in mind, let's take a look at talking about baseball. The counteroffensive in Ukraine, Bolton has made some uh, bold moves this week. Um, and for the first time, Russia was, I mean, reached in, in Moscow with a drone strike on an apartment complex, uh, which was mistaken and when Newsmax uh, did that story they actually aired a domestic uh apartment building that collapsed <laughs> which was Ugh. wrong video but uh nonetheless uh this week how much more dangerous is it becoming and why is biden becoming so emboldened if he is in ukraine and uh john you, you had dropped this on us your thoughts yeah uh the Interesting story about how Biden has been increasingly uh, willing uh, to to cross so-called red lines that Vladimir Putin has set as far as uh, the types of assistance the U.S. and, and other uh, Western countries, uh, in Putin's eyes, could provide Ukraine without uh, Russia retaliating against the West somehow, be it economically or um, some kind of heaven forbid, a military strike on a NATO country. Uh, and Putin has not, he's not retaliated. So Biden uh, has begun uh, going further and further, uh, which is, you know, which is a pretty rational foreign policy approach. If if your enemy is not going to enforce his own warnings, why don't you just keep going and helping your ally? Right. Well, the so, question is... Uh, I'm sorry, but the question is, in a in a nuclear world, how wise 
is it and how much more dangerous does it make the world? I, that's a that's a great question. I I I think I think Biden has has proven himself a pretty rational uh, actor, and 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 his approach to foreign policy has been pretty level headed. There is risk in in what he's doing, but there would be risk in not giving Ukraine some more heavy weaponry, some more missile systems uh, to defend itself, and to, to in certain instances take the fight to Russian forces. So. Um, there's risk here now. Now, if if you have a shipment of 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 javelin missiles on a train from Poland, and and Putin moves his tactical nuclear weapons toward the Ukrainian border, there's no reason you can't stop the train and take it back to Poland. Right. So you know there's steps you can take here. You could you could show Putin that you see what he's doing. You could remove some of these systems and then back channel. Uh, back channel through the Saudis or, or back channel through China that, okay, we, you can see what we're doing on your satellites and we're doing it. We, we hear you buddy uh, before he would launch those tactical nukes. So, you know, I think, I think this is a rational risk that Biden is taking. Um, he, he and other Western leaders would, would like to try to help Ukraine win, win the war or, or just, bring it to such a stalemate that Putin gives up and goes home. And, you know, that's part of the strategy. Biden and, and, and Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, and others have have hinted at that's the strategy here is to just kind of bleed Putin, uh, bad, horrible pun, sorry, is just yeah. to wear Putin down to the point where there's just no more benefit. Um, you know, this is hurting morale at home. Um, you know, Putin's protesters rebel forces inside russia um you know he's e more economically uh siloed and, and walled off from the west and and the rest of the world so this is taking a toll on putin and the the thing here is is maybe you know if we give ukraine more and more and more heavy weaponry maybe this just becomes too much of a stalemate and and putin decides you know, he's got a little bit more than Crimea. He's got some territory in the Donbass and the Russian speaking Donbass. And, you know, and then maybe we and Zelensky look the other way and he's got a little bit of the Donbass and takes his forces and goes home. And 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 that's the way out of this. So I, I think you do have to take some risks to try to force his hand. And that's what Biden's doing. Michael. Does it make it more dangerous for us this I think the uh, template is Afghanistan, which is after a decade of fighting, uh, Russia just ultimately gave up and, and yeah. went home, which is not to criticize Russia because more or less we did the we did the same the thing. Same thing, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think these inevitable wars are sustainable uh, for for any political leader, even if you're um, a, a, a dictator uh, along the lines of, of Putin. And so there was an interesting article in the paper, the New York Times today says, inside the complicated reality of being America's oldest president. And they talk about how Biden gets woken up at three o'clock in the morning and he's sharp as attack and is able to pull together a coalition of, of NATO uh, allies to deal with the uh, attack in 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 Poland, 
Um, yet uh, a day later, he trips on the stage um, and, and makes everyone feel that he's uh, old and, and, and feeble. I, I think what, what Biden is doing here, you know, if you support the notion that, that uh, Ukraine war is an important proxy war for, for the West, um, he's doing a, a, a marvelous job of keeping NATO unified in a way that was really unthought possible given how damaging Trump was to the NATO alliance. And so what he's doing here is keeping NATO intact, uh, doing this proxy war with Russia. Again, I'm not saying this is a good war or a bad war. Or I don't, I'm not smart enough to know about that. But if if it is a good, righteous war that we the West needs to to stand our ground and draw red lines in, then Biden is doing a, 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 a masterful job in that. And, you know, theoretically, if if NATO prevails here, uh, it's the world becomes a safer place down the down the line. Uh, I'll make two comments before I take. Uh, we have some letters to get to. One, I want to thank uh, our, our uh, extend congratulations to our comrade Kirsten Welker, who's taking over Meet the Press. Uh, but as far as you know, I, I didn't put that. Uh, you mentioned something, Michael, that I didn't put in the rundown for this week, and, and I'll address it. And that was um, <laughs> Biden tripping on stage. I uh, the first time I went to the White House, I was up in Upper Press. I was 24 years old. There were no sandbags. Uh, we had a Secret Service agent come through, and I believe it was Helen Thomas, myself, and it may have been Sam Donaldson. We're standing there. She was beating on the door, asking Larry Speaks to come out to speak to us. Secret Service came in and said, "Look, uh, you guys got to leave. The president's coming through to talk to Larry. You know how that is, John. Secret Service comes, you leave." So they left. I turned to leave. I tripped over my own two feet. I fell on the ground. I got as, and as I looked up, standing over me was Ronald Reagan. And he looked down at me and said, well, young fella, you don't have to bow in front of me. And I, I got up and left. Anybody can trip and fall. And I, that I, was a I, metaphor for your career. Really. Right. <laughs> wow. And I never have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Sorry. getting up there, Sorry. the that falling was, was, the well, well, it's a tough room, you know. Hey, hey so now. Anyway, anyway, anybody can trip and fall. And I, 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 I go back to stripes. Lighten up, Francis. The guy tripped and fell over a sandbag. He's 80 years old. He got up. He was fine. Uh, people seem to forget that, you know, Chevy Chase made a career out of imitating Gerald Ford falling down the steps of Air Force One when he went into Austria. I mean, that became a running gag. And nobody ever questioned his mental acuity because he tripped. Nowadays, we do. And if you want to talk about mental acuity, I, you know, John, you and I were in front of, of, of Trump enough. And I questioned that every damn day when he would say shit like expose yourself to light, inject you know, inject, yeah, inject yeah, the bleach, right. and, and he stumbled. You know, how about when he drank water? I thought, you know, that one shot of him drinking water and it looks like he's giving mouth to mouth to a water bottle. Yeah, I, I mean, the cup, yeah. 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 Remember when when Herbert Walker Bush vomited? Yeah. That, well, that was my joke back then was, you know, when I got in trouble for questioning 
uh, Bush, they said, well, what was the question that you asked him that pissed him off? I said, could you yak for us like you did in Japan? Now, I really didn't ask that, but it was, yeah, that was a huge thing. But nobody questioned his mental acuity. Now, because he's 80, that's where we go. And if there are legitimate reasons to question a man's mental acuity, fine. But I don't think it boils down to tripping and falling, unless you're doing it every damn day, which, you know, Gerald Ford seemed to do, and nobody cared. So <clears throat> with that said, we'll go to uh, – let. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, John. One, one thing on that. Uh, it's not a coincidence. Uh, pool report uh, just in. We taped on – we're recording on Sunday yeah. afternoon – uh, president Biden, not only this is any coincidence, a couple days after falling at 80, uh, the president is golfing right now at Joint Base <laughs> Andrews. And I don't believe in coincidences. So no. uh, he's so out Potus to prove is, that POTUS is, yeah, POTUS is just fine and he's hitting the links. Yeah, that's there you go. And he'll yeah, come in to the run. It's too bad it's not a rugby match. That would have yeah. been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or a soccer match. Yeah, you're right, rugby. Okay, so going to, going to the letters. For Michael, this comes from Rocket88. Both the Democrats and Republicans say the DOJ has been compromised by politics. Some Republicans are pushing defunding the FBI. Do you believe the DOJ has been compromised and should it be defunded? No and no. I think that under Garland, and we're talking just Garland, because right. under Trump, I think there was more, there was a greater infusion of politics into his decision-making than in previous administrations. And I served under um, Reagan and, and Bush. So under I was under French Smith, uh, Meese, Thornburg, Barr. Those are the uh, AGs that were there when I was a career person. I wasn't a political appointee. I was a career person. They just happened to be the AGs. They were all Republicans. And I think all of them were pretty apolitical, I think more less so. And I think Merrick Garland has returned to the tradition of an independent Justice Department who is trying to call balls and strikes, as they say, um, independent of, of politics. And so, no, I don't think they are being, they're being politicized or weaponized, and I don't think they should be defunded. Yeah, to me, that would be just ridiculous. Defund the DOJ. <laughs> Lawlessness will will ensue. That's, I you know, anarchy will reign, which is what I guess some of the Republicans want. Uh, for John, um, this is comes from Juno76Mom. You've said repeatedly you covered defense for many years. Why do defense contractors get away with price gouging, especially since we just got done dealing with a debt crisis? They do get away with that. I've had more. I had multiple sources when I was uh, still on that beat, especially in the last few years, as defense spending was just climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing, uh, even under President Obama and, and again under Trump. Uh, but I was still on the beat under President Obama and I had multiple sources and they were just emboldened. Uh, tell me that, you know, industry, you know, you get. The way it works is industry gets a, a, a initial set of specs or or they get a very broad um, kind of amorphous general idea from the Air Force or the Navy or the Army or the Marine Corps or the Coast Guard um, or now the Space Force for what uh, they might what they want. Yeah, what they want in a fighter jet or the latest, greatest new combat vehicle or, you know, the, the latest new destroyer or 
uh, the Navy ship. Um, and, you know, you can bring up here the F-35 and the littoral combat ship. One survived. The LCS did not survive. And that's because industry drove the requirements or the specs to points. And I had sources admit this, not just about those programs, but others. They knew the technology wouldn't work in five to, you know, five to seven years. It was 10 to 15, but that's what they sold Service X on. Service X says, okay, because they know Congress is going to go along with it because their jobs at stake in districts and states. So then, um, you know, we're, we're five years later and everybody's looking for this thing, be it an engine for a fighter jet or the latest, greatest cannon that's too heavy for the combat vehicle. But everybody, but the service and industry knew it was too heavy. Uh, but they just want to jack up those those funding dollars, and Congress yeah. is trying to do it because the screws are made in one state, the nuts are made in another state, the bullets are made in, in yet two other states, the cannon itself is being competed among four states, um, and you can see how this quickly spins out of control. There's a reason, you know, uh, President Eisenhower, former general, warned on his way out of office about the military-industrial complex. Uh, that is since defense critics have since altered that moniker to the military industrial congressional complex because <laughs> of Congress go right along with all of this. Um, you know, now, like I said earlier, you've got defense hawks talking about using um, I'm using quote fingers, Ukraine supplementals to get around these defense spending caps, and they will probably succeed, maybe not to the level that the Hawks won't, but they'll probably succeed because that's the le that's a lesson of the post 9-11 era is they can get away with it and and they probably will. So that's how it that's how it works. Uh, everyone's complicit here. You know, my criticism of of the defense sector would would be um, lessened if 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 folks in that world, including lawmakers, administration officials, think tankers, industry folks, the whole the whole thing, would just admit that at the core, this is a federal jobs program yeah. that might win a war or two one day. I, I, and, I and it's a jobs program that might win a war, and it's more and and but it but it has more to do with jobs than deterrence or winning wars. If 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 we could right. just be honest about that. You know, I think folks like me who have seen this thing and been inside it would be a little less critical, but they're just they're not good stewards of taxpayer dollars. And, and you know, that's something that that needs to be addressed. But there's just no there's really no incentive because there's so many jobs tied up. in it. Right. I, I always look at the the generals in the Pentagon as as uh, Jack Nicholson and and Batman going, where do they get all those wonderful toys? And that's what they just want, wonderful toys. Last question. Um, this is for all of us. Uh, you often talk about entertainment. Blaze 43 says, what is the greatest comedy movie of all time? Michael? Wow. That, that's a really hard question. <laughs> That's a really hard question. The greatest comedy movie of all time. I don't know. You know, uh, Blazing Saddles comes to mind as a as a wonderful <laughs> movie. He, he took mine. Yeah. 
<laughs> Some like it I hot. Think, I think I think um I think the the Monty Python, The Life of Brian is is a is a brilliant movie. And then there's the, you know, then there's, you know, so those are more sort of like straight up comedies. But then, you know, you could go back to like the great dictator, uh, the well, the great yeah. Chaplin movie, which is, you know, brilliant, but, but, but poignant. comedic. Yeah. Makes a point. And then you've got the, you know, sort of when Harry met Sally types of um, romantic comedy. Rom comp. So it's, yeah. it's really hard to say, but if, you know, if the question is, if you were on a desert Island and you can only bring one comedy movie with you, which movie would you bring? I probably would bring the whatever is the longest, you know, whatever is the, <laughs> is the, is the longest movie, you know. John, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> okay. This is this this will say uh, this this may uh, reveal too much about me, but I'll go with and no particular order here. I just jotted these down. I'll go with Caddyshack. I'll go with Police Academies one, two, and four, and I have I have to throw in my all time favorite Major League. Oh, there you go. I like Major League. Well, Blazing Saddles was mine off the top. Yeah, it got to be Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that's the number one. There's an old one called Some Like It Hot that I like, where where it's the the people in Florida won't like it because Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon dress up as women, and it's got Marilyn Monroe. But that's a funny movie and the funniest last line of any movie ever when Joey Brown is talking to to uh, Jack Lemmon and has no idea through the entire movie that he's a guy in drag and he proposes marriage to him and he's on the boat and, and Jack Lemmon takes off the wig. I'm a guy, I'm a guy, I'm a man. And he goes, ah, everybody's got their problems, you know? <laughs> and he's still, that's funniest line ever. But um, so I'll throw an I, honorable mention, honorable mention Fletch. No, I was going to say, uh, I, you know, as I begin thinking about this, besides Monty Python and the Holy Grail, um, is also Marx Brothers stuff. Oh Ducks, my God! Uh, yeah, they they, there are some scenes in those movies that are just politically oh. inappropriate <laughs> at the moment, um, and probably <laughs> should have been inappropriate at the time. But 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 Duck Soup, Duck uh, Soup is 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 an incredibly funny movie. Duck, Day, Duck Soup, Day at the Races. Those those two Marx Brothers um, movies are are just terrific. Well, and there was, you know, Woody Allen parrot, well, stole from uh, Bob Hope and the Marx Brothers. And uh, uh, I think it was, oh, uh, the one where he comes back from the dead uh, or goes to the future. Um, can't even remember the name of that movie, but that was that was hilarious as too. I, I mean, uh, I'm going to find it here. Uh, not men. Uh, sleeper, uh, sleeper. Thank you. That one. Uh, <laughs> or love and death. Either one of those two would qualify. But I'll also say, and I and I told you this before we started today, which is what got me thinking on this question. I, I just saw a movie I'd recommend. It's a father son comedy with Mark Hamill and Burt Kreischer, the stand up comedian. I would recommend it. It's the best experience and the most laughing I've done in a in a theater since before COVID. I, I'd recommend. You, you go see the machine and if you don't know what that's all about go look at that but i i still think it's blazing saddles i'll end with that blazing saddles was still my my favorite all-time funny movie and i i could sit on a desert island and watch that and laugh forever or, or so 
<laughs> as we're as we're talking, and I'm still thinking about this because it's a great question. Thank you, listener, uh, <laughs> for this. But but I'm thinking of the producers. Is a oh movie. my God! Yes, <laughs> the original. That, yeah, that, yeah. The original time for Hitler is Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking that maybe I like that even better than. Uh, blazing saddles so <laughs> that's well anyway well thanks for that question and and, and uh, this is as always been a lot of fun we'll catch you next week this is just ask the question i am your host brian Karam and michael where can we catch your stuff weekly plug baby the podcast is called that said with michael zeldin it is a book based non-fiction book based um, conversation with the authors uh, this past week, I just released the book by Supreme Court reporter Joan Biskubic on the Supreme Court and its tilt to the right under uh, Roberts and with the three appointees of, of Trump. And next week, as I indicated last week, it will be Jeffrey Tubin's book, Homegrown, about Timothy McVeigh and the rise of white nationalism. The following week, we'll be discussing a book called you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Live, And that's about the Birmingham campaign that um, Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King led in um, Birmingham, Alabama. It gave us rise to the, a letter from Birmingham jail um, that, that, that MLK um, penned during that campaign to end segregation in Birmingham, affectionately known as Bombingham at the time, because there were more bombings in Birmingham than any other place in America, the most racist city under the uh, dictatorial reign of uh, Bull Connor. So it's an it's a fascinating book. So that's where I that's where I am. And I can say go Quakers, University of Pennsylvania baseball team. Making, his, making history in the NCAA men's baseball tournament. Tune in tonight at 9 p.m. Sunday, that is. John. Oh, yes. Go Quakers, indeed. Uh, <laughs> I love a Cinderella story as much as anyone. Uh, CQ Afternoon Briefing Newsletter and a weekly column, RollCall.com. And I am Brian Karam. This is Just Ask the Question. You can catch me in Salon.com on a weekly column on Thursdays. And the name of the book is Free the Press. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.